parents do kind of correctly feel like they're just marooned out there and they're the only safety net their kid has in the world. Welcome to Think of the Children, where we talk about the intersection of parenting and education and why it's all so damn hard. I'm Emily Popek, and my guest this week is Sarah Jaffe, whose excellent book, Wanting What's Best, Parenting, Privilege, and Building a Just World, is out in May 2022. I really enjoyed talking to Sarah about the exciting things that parents and educators are doing and can do to make our world more equitable, and I hope you enjoy our conversation as well. So Sarah, um, why don't we start by having you introduce yourself? Tell me a little bit about yourself and about your book. Sure. So hi, I'm Sarah Jaffe. Uh, I live in Brooklyn with my four-year-old and husband. Until pretty recently, I was a attorney for kids in foster care for about seven years. Um, I was always kind of dabbling in freelance writing as well. The book that's coming out in May is called Wanting What's Best, Parenting Privilege and Building a Just World. And it's really trying to look at childhood inequality in the U.S., through a lens of individual parents who are trying to address that inequality through their parenting decisions. I work in public schools. Uh, So the title really resonated with me because I feel like that sort of notion of parents just want what's best for their kids uh, is such a big theme in the school system, right? I know it resonates in lots of other areas and fields as well, but it feels like such a big part of the conversation around education right now. Definitely, definitely. Yeah. And, and schools are the is the longest chapter of this book, I think, and in part because of what you're talking about. It, could, it does have the most resonance there, I think. So I would love to hear what is something that you learned working on this book or, or found or discovered that surprised you? This was something I knew on some level but hadn't really fully grappled with is just the, the extent of segregation in our current school system. In law school, of course, you study Brown versus Board of Education and segre- you know, segregated schools ended in 1954 and, and like, like couldn't be further from the truth, which I think I knew on some level, but I didn't understand the extent of it. And one of the, the great gifts of writing this book, I think, was getting to talk to people from the organization Integrated Schools, whose work I feature pretty heavily in the schools chapter. And then it's basically just a grassroots organization of parents who are seeing the realities of segregation for what it is and talking about it. Um, it's particularly aimed at white parents who don't want to perpetuate that that issue, basically, <laughs> that's still alive, that don't want to perpetuate segregation. That's what comes to mind. Is there anything you can name that has changed how you approach things as a parent? Like, is there anything you learned from this work that made you say, you know, I might actually take a different approach to something than what I might have otherwise done? Yeah, definitely. Like, like uh, literally everything basically. Yeah. I mean, I feel like before I was writing this book, I was pretty caught up in the well, what's everyone else doing? You know, as part of the the Brooklyn list serves, which are sort of infamous for like hyper intense parenting. And, you know, I was a little bit like, oh, a little dubious about some of it, but I also felt very swayed by what were parents around me doing. And I felt like I didn't have any, I didn't really know where else to look for sources of information. So how do you set up a childcare arrangement and what's a good school? And, you know, and everyone's still like, like literally already talking about college, even though I only have a four-year-old. And so getting the chance to talk to actual people with expertise about how to thoughtfully approach these issues, was just like a huge load off 
my shoulders. And I, you know, it was like, I, I maybe knew deep down that I didn't want to be part of this parenting rat race, but I didn't have a lot of alternatives. And then this feels like it gave me alternatives sort of for several major parenting decisions. So like my, we, we just went through, you know, kindergarten admissions and through the work of integrated schools, it's like, I, I feel like very excited about sending her to this school that might have been more of like a oh well I don't know if we'll you know we'll fit in there I mean she'll be in the demographic minority and that's fine (laughs) like that's actually not you know something that that I need to automatically assume won't won't be a good fit or whatever Uh, you know what you said just made me think about a question that I ask a lot and I feel like it's a really it's a potentially really rich question for us to talk about which is what is a good school, right? Like what are those things that we might look at or think about or consider when we're asking that question? Because I think, you know, as you were just saying, even if we know that, you know, what we're told is a good school is like a super racialized understanding of what good means, even if we know that. So if you say, okay, I'm going to take that away. I'm going to get rid of that. We don't always know what should replace it. Maybe what measures uh, would be more useful for me to use. So I'd love to hear more about what you looked at for your family or, you know, if a friend came to you and said, you know, I have to pick a school for my kid. Um, and I know you've done a lot of thinking about this. Like, what are some of the things that come to mind that that are more important than these sort of some of the value judgments that have driven segregation in schools? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think some of it is just putting a little less intense weight on the idea that where you go to elementary school makes or breaks you for life and like really you know changes like that's that's kind of dodging the question a little bit but it's like you know a lot of the most hyper intense parenting and the the biggest anxieties people have are college educated relatively affluent parents where all the data suggests that that matters a lot you know that gives your kid a very significant um, head start in the world wherever they go to school. It's, it's not the schools don't matter. I don't mean to take it that far, but it's just not, you know, we're, we're going to make or break them. I have a friend who was talking about, like, she was like, well, I'm just, I'm just really worried that he won't learn about, you know, kindness if he doesn't go to this kindergarten. I was like, what? <laughs> I mean, like, that's not really how learning or child development works or any, <laughs> anything like that. Anyway, Isn't that anyway. interesting though, that like, it really speaks to this massive sort of mental burden that we place on schools, the yeah. idea of, of how much we are asking them to be responsible for the idea that like somehow her, her child would have like a kindness deficit, right? If that wasn't like present enough in the kindergarten curriculum, totally. it's very interesting to me, like how much we think schools are going to do Definitely. The the question really that, you know, is, is maybe more appropriate to ask about schools is not like, is this a good school, but who is this a good school for? And it was interesting for me to interview Black and Latino parents who were saying things like, like one mom said, well, that the most physically, you know, the shiniest school, and she meant literally and figuratively shiny could be a place where her kids would kind of be the most marginalized. So it's, it's a good school, but not for her kids, not for her family. And I hadn't really thought about that at all as a, as a white person. It's like a good school is a good school. <laughs> like it's, it's a objective measure. And then I talked to parents, you know, with kids in the foster care system, you know, who struggle with 
trauma issues and such who also went to a good school that couldn't handle their kid at all. Like, so I think it's just like, we need to give schools look critically at, at who they're serving and, you know, give, give schools credit who are serving, you know, populations of, of kids who maybe they're teaching them a lot, but it doesn't, you know, they're, they don't get the highest test scores versus schools that are able to hit the test scores out of the park every year because of the population of kids they serve, you know, it's not a super original idea, but, but it, but it, I mean, it is striking, you know, as you said, it's like, we might know these things intellectually, like mm-hmm. we might say like, oh, I, I'm not worried about the test scores. And yet when parents go to pick a school or pick a good neighborhood to move to, because they're looking at the schools, you know, what information are we presented with? It's often the test scores. And how often do we push beyond that to seek out, you know, maybe some more uh, useful information? about the school. Yeah. And, the, and there's a lot, I mean, in, in the circles I run in, I feel like, you know, the, does the school have an organic garden? Is it Montessori curriculum? Like has sort of replaced the test score thing a little bit, but it's all kind of still a proxy for a certain kind of privilege that it doesn't really get away from it fundamentally. Uh, you know, talking to parents who've sent their kids to the low scoring schools. One of them said, you know, what she's gotten from this school, I could never give her anywhere else. Like she can have the, you know, hands-on learning experiences and, and, you know, do all these other things that we kind of think are crucial during the school day through extracurriculars. That seemed like a good message. (laughs) Yeah. I love that, that there are so many things that a school can give to students. Right. And so many different ways that one kid could fit in or not fit in within whatever that that school culture is. I want to go back to something you were saying because we were talking about the parenting rat race, that sense, that myth that choosing the right preschool or kindergarten or whatever is is the make it or break it point in like a child's entire life. I think we see that around us and we understand that that's a dynamic of privileged parenting in America in 2022. But I'm really curious if you have any thoughts about what is driving that parenting rat race. What do you see is behind that? What do you see is is motivating the parents who are participating in that, whether sort of enthusiastically or, or even sometimes a little grudgingly? Totally. Yeah. Well, I think, I mean, that the New York times, um, did some good journalism around this question, like after the varsity blues scandal, um, when the and snowplow parenting became a term, and and so I I talk about that in my book. Some of it is definitely economic inequality of our our country. Like it's gotten more and more stratified, and this sense that if you're not one of very few winners, that you're on the other side of the divide and like a paycheck away from living on the streets is it's not entirely inaccurate, you know, it's like, it's definitely, definitely is the way a lot of the country lives. And um, so rising inequality kind of feeds into people's perceptions. Dan Ariely has written about how the the very state of being a parent sort of confuses our moral compass, (laughs) you know, and that we get the mess, like a good parent sacrifices everything for their children, but we don't really have a way of distinguishing like, okay, so we need to do that, but then the part that says, but not, you know, stomp on other people to get there doesn't get activated as much. 
So I think that's like really interesting that the language used by, you know, parents fleeing war-torn countries is kind of used by parents who are not in that position at all to justify like why they need to get their kid into a certain school. <laughs> I think it's, it's very troubling. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's such a great point that it's like the intensity level seems like it's dialed way, way out of proportion to the reality of yes. the situation. Yes. Yes. And as you said, to like relative to everything we know, right, about what actually gives children advantage as adults, right? Like it is not, as it turns out, getting into the right kindergarten. Um, it's all these other factors, as many of which are sort of out of our control. I mean, out of our direct control. So it's like, it's always, there's always something you could be optimizing more to, right? Mm-hmm. Make sure your kid is gonna be okay and not end up living on the street. I wonder if you have any, this is a big question and it might like, it might take me a minute to get here, but stay with me. I wonder if you have any, like we've talked a little bit about like the, the, the personal side of this equation. Like I asked you, you know, if you've approached personal decisions, maybe a little differently since working on this book and, and what that can look like. I wonder if you have any systemic thoughts about what some of our systems in this country could look like in a more equitable way if uh, if things were different. Yeah, and I, I think that's actually an important piece of your last question too, is that the, it's, it's another driver of the fear that we don't have any social safety net and that you know parents do kind of correctly feel like they're just marooned out there and they're the only safety net their kid has in the world and they need to arm them. So absolutely, I think that, um, it, it is a systemic problem at the root of this that individuals are responding to and, you know, maybe not in an ideal way, but it's, it's also at its core, like about a lack of social safety net and a lack of investment in childcare schools, higher education in this country. And I, I tried to address in each chapter, you know, interviews with individual parents about how are they navigating this, you know, slapdash really bad childcare system we have and how can they think about it individually but also you know the the book includes interviews with um the parents in portland oregon who got a ballot initiative passed to make universal childcare for three and four-year-olds um and asking like how did they do it what what steps you know and and it's it wasn't that it was a ton of work it was absolutely a ton of work but they they did it, you know, and, and I found those stories very uplifting and, and hopeful that there are like local changes. I mean, definitely we, it was devastating that we didn't get, we were so close to having national childcare and (laughs) didn't. (laughs) And like, I was writing the chapter, like, while it kept going back and forth. And it was like, "Ah, do you imagine like, you're killing me. You know, it shouldn't be out of the goodness of people's heart that they pay their nanny a living wage and stuff like that. Like that, that kind of stuff needs to get actual investment. Um, the school's question absolutely ties into this, like the, the discrepancies in, and I, I discuss this a lot in the book, like the discrepancies in PTA funding. It's just huge. Like in, in terms of, you know, what, what schools can offer different groups of kids and that in a really just society wouldn't be the case either. Yes, there are very big systemic factors at play for sure. Yeah, the PTA thing is like, 
it's such a, I feel like I had no idea until um, I started engaging more with the public school system. I was like, oh, whatever, PTA, la, 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 they have a bake sale. Like, I had no idea. You know what I mean? Like, what a massive economic driver that is in so many school districts. But then, yeah, in others, it's like, it's the assistant principal and two moms in a room. And they're like, well, maybe we can give the kids pencils this year. You know, like, it's just like night and day. It's wild to me. Yeah, it really is. And I, so I interviewed two moms in Evanston, Illinois, who were, who spearheaded getting their whole school district to go to a one fund model where all the PTA money goes in a pot and it all goes and it all gets distributed by a need, basically. Like people, the, the schools that serve, you know, a, a more in need population get more money instead of the exact opposite, which is the current system. So that was cool too. You know, that's again, a local solution. It's not, it, it's not like everywhere has gone to that model, but, but they were able to get it done too. Right. And I feel like that's such a great example of like, like for me, that bridges the individual with the systemic, you know what I mean? Definitely. It's, it's not, cause I feel very frustrated often by things that are just about individual parental choice, because like that's, totally. the world is never going to change if it's just about where I, you know what I mean? And also, like, if we can't get freaking Joe Manchin to vote on the federal, then we're a little bit stuck there, too. So, yeah, those examples of grassroots change do feel so exciting and empowering. It's a a way to to, uh, you know, nudge the system in the right direction a little bit, maybe. Right. And that feels feels great. I definitely didn't want to write a book that like beat up on individual parents like there are enough of those, like, forget it. And like, I, I hope that reading this book would do in some way where writing it did for me. It was just like, take a load off, make you feel, you know, more at peace, more like you have guidance for how to make good decisions. Not like you're caught in the, you know, echo chamber of, of people around you telling you that you're doing it wrong and you're missing out and you're all of that, that we know so well. Yes, so much you're doing it wrong. So much of that when you enter this parenting space. And I feel like, you know, I'm sure there's like a different version of you doing it wrong for men and for dads. But I feel like for women, it's like we're already so saturated and you're doing it wrong messages that it's just like, just pile on another layer of those when I become a mom, like, sure, more of that. It's great. I would love to hear a little bit about like your approach to parenting. I would love to hear if there's anything that you are doing differently as a parent compared to what was done in your family of origin. Yeah, I think that, you know, there's and something I really like about modern parenting culture, even though I've said a million bad things about it. I think there's just a greater recognition that kids are people. They're their own people. They are not just like appendages for their parent. They're not (laughs) things to be controlled by the parents. And if I didn't already feel that way, like my daughter absolutely would have, you know, made that very clear. Like she has had the strongest agendas from really almost day one, like, and just cannot be swayed from them at all. And I, I do think I kind of, as much as is reasonable and as much as like enables me to still feel like a person, I, I let her call a lot of shots, <laughs> like uh, quite a lot of them about what she wants to do, you know, and believing her about her preferences and all of that. And it's not that my parents never did that or anything, but there just was more of a culture that like 
parents say things and kids do them. I don't know. I mean, it definitely is like a question for me about where's the right line with that. And it's like, it's constantly negotiating, but that's what comes to mind is the answer. Yeah. I can relate to that a lot. For me, it requires like constant checking in with myself. The other night, it was bath night. Okay. It's time to get in the shower. My daughter's 10. And she was like, I don't want to take a shower tonight. I'll do it in the morning. And I started to be like, no, it's a shower night. You're going to shower tonight. And then I was like, well, hold I was like, give me a minute. And I was like, is there any, can she shower in the morning? Can we do yeah. that? Is there time? Like, I think, yeah, I think we can do that. But it was so reflexive for me to be like, no, it's, it's, <laughs> like, it's a shower yeah. night. It's time for shower. And the same, you know, the same thing with like getting up in the morning, it's time for dinner, whatever. I have to check in with myself all the time and be like, like, do I need her to get out of bed right now? Or like, I don't, maybe like, yes. maybe it's fine. Do I need her to wear her coat? Like, I don't know. Oh yeah, like, no, I, like, I do not fight about coats at all. And she'll have to put it on 30 seconds later and it's fine. Like, right. Or yeah. like, or yeah. they don't. And you're like, oh, you're actually not cold. Yeah. That was like a big, that was a big light bulb moment for me as a oh. kid to like change the conversation to be like, hmm, what I'm going to say out loud instead is, hey, I went outside earlier and it, I felt like it was pretty chilly. You might want a coat today, period. Like that, that's, I don't need to say anything else, right? Or like if you wear sneakers to school today, they might get really muddy because it's really muddy outside. It took me a while to get there as a parent. (laughs) Yeah, no, it's hard. It's hard. And there's, I don't know, there's still a lot of like, well, never negotiate. I I think it's, I think it's hard to to get it right. I, I do like the, you know, a lot of the modern parenting, gentle parenting guru people have a lot of like, just have, have empathy for your kids. Like think about if you were told where to go every second of your day and told what to put on and take off and how grumpy you would be. I think it's, I think it's helpful. I think it's a good reminder. Yeah. And think about how you probably would make a big stand over something. If you could find that one thing, right. It's like, you're going to go to the mat for it because like, it's, it's the only little piece of autonomy you get in the whole day. Yep. (laughs) For sure. I wonder too, if you can, can you name something that is hard or challenging for you? Like at this season of, of parenting during this time in your, in your life and in your kid's life. Sure. How much time do you, (laughs) yeah. Like Like, where should I start? Yeah, exactly. Like this has not been just this season, but I was not like that at all as a kid. I ate everything. Very happy. Yes. Same, same. Okay. And that is hard for me. I have good days and bad days with it. And some days it just like drives me to distraction. Like, and it's been going on for a good, at least two and a half years, probably, probably even more. And I've, I've found a lot of um, help and support through there. There's a Facebook group of parents whose kids have an actual eating disorder called avoidant restrictive food intake disorder that my daughter hasn't been diagnosed with, but she's definitely... (laughs) definitely like a lot of that group resonates for me. And it's kind of like, like what I talked about in the last question, I've just had to be like, she just doesn't, she doesn't like it. Like I wouldn't want to be forced to eat food. I didn't like, she's not doing it at me. It's not a manipulative thing. Cause I really don't think it is, even though there's plenty of messages about, you know, well, you just say, this is what's for dinner and you don't make anything else. And like, I would love that. I would love if that worked and it just has shown no signs of working. Um, Right. Like that would be great. That'd be amazing. No one would would ever struggle with this if that worked for everyone. (laughs) Like, I know, I know. I if it was, yeah, 
it's just yeah like, sometimes I feel at peace with it and some days I'm like just eat god <laughs> right because yeah. it feels this is making me think of like what we were talking about earlier is like for me you know getting like my kid to eat a meal like it feels like the stakes are super high mm-hmm. it feels urgent you know yeah. and that's part of the challenge when I feel that sense of urgency it's really hard to make rational decisions because it feels like an emergency. Absolutely. Absolutely. No, it's, it's like you have all the information about what the rest of the day looks like and like how really in half an hour, we can't be sitting back down to eat again. If you decide you're hungry, that, you know, it's like, and so it does feel like an emergency because it depends on the rest of your schedule depends on it. And yeah, I mean the, the like Shalit when she's hungry thing is not completely true for her is is, and is not completely true for lots of kids unfortunately like I do have to be on top of it in a in a way that because she'll she'll just sort of like fall apart and get really hangry and like get so dysregulated she can't eat if if I'm not pretty on top of it but she doesn't have to like eat as much as I think that she's supposed to eat you know what, what you were saying it's it's really not an actual emergency it's it's never been an actual emergency the most (laughs) useful thing that my pediatrician ever told us when my daughter's still really little and I'm sure you've heard this advice too but I'm just sharing because it resonated with me so much and I still think about it all the time but she said when you're thinking about like balanced eating or whatever she said don't think about the meal don't think about the day don't think about the week she said think about it over the course of a month And I was like, what? Wow, really? I was like so blown away by that idea. And it felt so liberating to me because she was talking about how kids go on sort of eating jags, you know, especially when they're younger in the toddler years. And it's like, they will eat nothing but string cheese for three weeks or whatever. And she was like, yeah, that's a thing that human beings do like totally fine. Don't like, please don't worry about it ever because it's just, you know, it doesn't work that way. And I was like, are you sure though? Cause it really seems like, yeah. you know, and she was like, yep, yep. It's like, like really, really, really big picture, but it's hard to, it was hard for me to do, even though I could conceptualize that, um, you yeah. know, when you're staring at that plate and you're like, no vegetables were consumed. It, you know? Yeah. No, right. And like you, you have an image like the plate's sort of supposed to be colorful and pretty and not just like, not just five string cheese. Eggs. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like five, five things of string cheese. Yeah. <laughs> I, I like that that it's a month it was great I tell everyone that who has a picky okay. eater at home because thank you <laughs> it was so liberating I was like wow that's 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 just beautiful I would love to also hear something that you love about parenting right now like what's something that's great about like this season in your family's life our daughter is very 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 into pretend play right now like many four-year-olds like to the extent that she never wants to be called by her actual name and she has like different obsessions at different times of what she wants to be called right now it's presidents like this morning she wanted she wanted to be Barack last night she was Jimmy Carter it's like she's like just and yeah like all of that is just it's just like it's just very funny like we have things to laugh about every night after she goes to bed because she takes herself so seriously but is like so unintentionally funny and it's a a fun thing about four-year-olds I think yeah that's great I love just like the things that will that they will string together, that they, you know, that they will compile into like whatever world they're inhabiting in the moment. It's like, it's amazing. I could never, it's the greatest. It's the greatest thing in the world. 
you know, we were talking before about like the parenting rat race and like those things sometimes that we kind of felt feel swept up by, like I'm doing this stuff, but I feel like maybe there's, there should be another way, but here I am. And also I know like before we become parents, sometimes we have all these ideas about how things are going to be like, oh, I'm never going to do X, Y, and Z. Right. Are there things you said you would never do as a parent that you absolutely have done? Yeah, I think, I mean, some of it is the, the food thing for sure. Like I was very, and this even lasted and, you know, after I was a parent, it was like, okay, well, they'll just do baby led weaning. And then that's like a smooth sail into a, you know, diverse and wonderful palate. Like that's what, that's what it says. And she did eat everything until she was, you know, which, which also is common, but they don't really tell you that, but like, yeah, when they're messing around with food and they're, you know, just right. Then there's like it's like a little regression. Like they're they're like, nope. And they it like shrinks down again, right? Yeah, they don't mm-hmm. do that. Yeah. Yeah. But right when she was eight months old and like grabbing, you know, chow me off my plate, it was like, oh, you know, got this figured out. So that was like a huge slice of humble pie for sure. I definitely didn't want to do many screens and I have mostly stuck to that we have showed her like she's seen now maybe I think she's seen two movies now in her life and I just had this image right that if she saw a screen she was going to be like a slack job zombie and sort of never want to do anything else and like you know I kind of catastrophized it but even when the movies were on she was like running around the room and asking me a million questions about them. And like, she didn't like suddenly become a different child. So <laughs> I think that was also just a, a funny moment for me that I had, I, I think I'd, I'd catastrophized that a lot and like had that as a kids automatically just become like totally horribly behaved, you know, demanding screen time, little monsters when, <laughs> when, when they've, whenever they've seen a screen and actually that that was overblown right as if our as if our kids never irrationally demand any other things well yeah drive us crazy right (laughs) absolutely right and like for the entire for so long she would just throw books at me which meant like read this (laughs) this was like when she was pre-verbal but it's like right was that so much better like I don't know (laughs) Yeah, but I think too, you know, we were talking about sort of like um, in the absence of like good, rich, nuanced information about schools, we sort of rely on like, right, these heuristics about things like test scores. And uh, I have felt that way at times about screen time too, you know, that in the absence of like really nuanced, like rich conversations about the role of screens in our home or whatever, we fall back on those heuristics that are just like screen time bad, period, the end. Yeah, I know. (laughs) I know. And, and I think I, I did buy into that too much. But it's, uh, it's understandable because I think, um, you know, certainly at the time when my child was young, like the language around screen time for young kids was, was unequivocal and it was very strongly worded. So like, what are people going to think? You know, it was sort of like, I almost think of it as like, you know, like the don't do drugs campaigns of the 1980s. It was like, this is your brain on screen time. Like, that's it. There's no more conversation. It's totally. super bad and you better not do it. Like that's all, that's all we have to say about it. <laughs> uh, yeah. And, and so much of parenting advice is like that. Like, right. If you truly followed every recommendation, it's like, oh my God, you know, you're supposed to 
yeah, brush their teeth like three times a day and get them 60 minutes of outdoor activity and do like <laughs> X, Y, and Z. It's like, wow. Right. And so rarely do we, ta- do we come finish the sentence? So rarely do we talk about what the cost would actually be if we didn't do those things. Mm-hmm. Right. Which I, mm-hmm. I find really important. It's can be valuable to say it benefits children to have, you know, two hours of exercise per day. But it's also really important to say, and if that doesn't happen, you know, here's what to expect. Because in the absence of that information, I find myself assuming the worst, you know, instant obesity, right? Uh, A life of torpor. uh, Yes. Yeah. And certainly the reality is, is uh, a little more nuanced than that. Definitely. And I think a, a helpful thing about having represented kids in foster care is like you have a bar for, you know, for, for what kids actually need. And a lot of it is just to go home to the same people every day and have people who care about them and try to meet their needs. And it's like, that's, that's most of it really. And seeing a lot of kids who didn't have that how not having that is is the actual thing for concern to me like that's so promising and uplifting because it's like well I can do that you know totally. I can do that totally. like yeah almost every day and that's great yes <laughs> that's great yes. that's good yes. news there's a lot of other things that I can't do every day for my kid or my family right yes but I can show up and you know try to meet their needs so that's, that's the good news definitely the you know the good enough parent is really what what kids need way more parents that that are that than think they are that I think and it's important to keep that perspective for everyone's sake yeah because I because right when you don't have it then it does lead you to catastrophize these outcomes you know that right that outcomes that that do actually happen to kids but they happen to kids that you know in way more marginalized situations than the parents that I'm typically hearing from yeah, just like having risk perception and all these things that have come to play a lot during the pandemic too, like are, have always been at play in this conversation, I think. But yeah, risk perception, maybe not like the strength of the contemporary American parent. <laughs> I feel like maybe not what we're best at. <laughs> no, like famously not. Yeah. <laughs> I did want to ask you uh, one more thing that I always like to ask everyone, which is, when you are working, where is your kid? Yeah, I saw that question. I was like, oh, what a great question. That's <laughs> absolutely everyone should be asked that. Mostly, so New York has uh, universal pre-K. So from 8 a.m. to 2.20 p.m., she has taxpayer-funded pre-K. But that's that's just since she was four. She's with my husband a lot. <laughs> and I do a lot after he's done with work and on the weekends. I do the early morning thing sometimes, definitely not every morning, but uh, the 5 a.m., the occasional 5 a.m. morning kind of like can hold it all together. Okay. And I don't work full time. Like that's a lot of the answer is like, I don't have a, I haven't had a full-time job since 2020. I think it's just very, very challenging for to have two, two full-time working parents in, in the U.S. as it's structured right now. I was reading just the other day that you know, the famously the percentage of, you know, families that have a parent at home increased during the pandemic, right? People left the workforce or they uh, shifted their works. More people are working from home, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I read this headline that was like, it increased by 60%. And I was like, wow, that's wild. That's massive. Like that's so many people 
But then I actually read the article and, you know, it went from like 1.4% to like <laughs> some other just vanishingly small number. So, you know, the, the headline I would have read, preferred to read on that article would have said the overwhelming majority of American families still don't have an adult at home yes. <laughs> during the workday. Like that's the actual right. reality that American families are living with is that everybody's working. Totally. You know, yeah. and even the pandemic didn't change it that much, not that much. That's really interesting. Yeah, it is just so true. I mean, I'd, I'd read about this for years before com- becoming a parent, but it is like very striking how little the hours of childcare and all that match up with work hours. They just, they just don't. <laughs> like, but it doesn't, yeah, but it sort of like blows my mind up every time where I'm just like, wait, but how, what? I, I was on the telephone earlier today with uh, the district superintendent of my daughter's school district because I'd emailed him to say, there are too many half days on the school calendar. Like, can you please, like, is there, is there nothing that can be done? Can you find a community partner to provide some aftercare? Like, so please, There's something, no please. There's just half days with screw yes. you. Yeah. Okay, so great. he called me and we had a really great conversation and I really respect what he's trying to do as far as providing more professional learning for teachers in his district so that they can meet students needs in the classroom it's really important work and also like there's nowhere for these kids to go after school in our community not nowhere but like these gaps just aren't being bridged and he is trying and and people are trying but it's just so staggering to me how there's just so many gaps everywhere uh, it's wild yeah. and don't even get me started about summer because like what oh, it is rough oh yeah. oh yeah no I know I mean even in the with the um universal pre-k you know that doesn't include summer of course like the the summer is just a a wasteland <laughs> yeah and and yeah the the costs of that's certainly another thing I did not did not really understand going into parenting is the the costs of childcare and summer camp are fully just out of reach for the vast majority of families. So anyway, it's it's not like I think that parents can individual decision their way out of a lot of these things. <laughs> like absolutely, because if we yeah. like if sheer force of will could have solved it by now, you know what I mean, or if wishing and praying, yeah. uh, yes then we would be all set. <laughs> yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. I want to thank you for speaking with me today. Do you want to close by like letting people know where they can find you, where they can find your book and all of that good stuff? Sure. Um, so I'm mostly active on Twitter. Um, I'm at Sarah Winifred. It's my middle name. Yeah. The book is available for pre-order. Um, it comes out May 24th, uh, you can find it anywhere. I um, am particularly, I'm doing signed copies through Third Place Books in Seattle, uh, which is an independent bookstore that it's on, Amazon, Target, Barnes & Noble, all the places. Yeah, and it will have a, it'll have a um, book club guide and uh, other stuff that's gonna be available on my website and such for, um, for parents who wanna read it and talk about it with their parent friends. Thanks again to Sarah for speaking with me, and I hope you'll check out her fantastic book. You can read my conversation with Sarah and subscribe to this newsletter at thinkofthechildren.substack.com. 
As always, thanks for reading and listening. I'd love to hear from you, so please reach out with any comments, questions, or other feedback. I'm Emily Popek, and this has been Think of the Children.